Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. Today, our conversation is about the MENA region post-COVID-19. My guest is Sami Hamdi, editor-in-chief of The International Interest. Sami, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bill. Appreciating that the region has wide economic disparities from huge Gulf wealth through to deeply troubled economies such as Lebanon's. I'm going to ask you to take a macro view, the big picture. Post-COVID-19, what do you think the economic landscape of MENA will look like? I think it's, it's uh, as, as you said, each one has their own unique economic uh, differences. But uh, I think it will look much the same way that it looks today from the, from, the, from the aspect of the countries that are already struggling economically will continue to struggle economically. And the countries that are doing better actually have the resources and reserves to ride out at least the short term and possibly even the medium term uh, economic impacts. Let's take, for example, uh, uh, Saudi to start with. Saudi has more than $500 billion dollars. Uh, of reserves. Saudi has a precedent in, in times of crises to open the coffers out to the people. We'll remember, uh, people will remember the floods in Jeddah during the time of King Abdullah, uh, how the coffers were opened and, and people were compensated uh, for their losses. Uh, I, this doesn't mean that it, it won't impact their economies. There's already been a huge disruption to supply chains. There's been a big reduction in, in production. And there's also issues with regards to a lot of companies are shrinking. And this is not just unique to Saudi Arabia. It's also in the UAE. It's also in Qatar, which has already, has already been juggling with a lot of this as a result of the blockade imposed by the three Gulf countries and, and Egypt, by Bahrain, UAE, Saudi Arabia uh, and uh, Egypt. Uh, but the real issue for these uh, Gulf countries in particular, that's including Qatar, including Saudi Arabia, including UAE, Bahrain and Kuwait, uh, is that uh, how do they help these shrinking companies deal with the workforce? So... If they, if they can't pay the salaries or a reduction in salaries, then that increases the unemployment levels. And we already know that unemployment is becoming an issue in a lot of these places. So you take a country like Saudi Arabia, Bin Salman relies on the youth. He relies on, on these young people who are uh, reliant on the prosperity that he's promised via his vision uh, 2030. Suddenly that becomes a government problem. Does the government suddenly open up the coffers and, and help to sustain these people? What does it do, for example, anybody dealing in Saudi Arabia? Uh, will measures be taken to help Saudi workers at the expense of uh, non-Saudi workers? All of these questions are up in the air. For the economies that are struggling, uh, of course, going back to Saudi for a second, uh, Saudi is also in this oil price war with Russia. So uh, that also affects uh, the long-term capabilities of dealing uh, with COVID-19. But all in all, uh, UAE, Saudi, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, these Gulf countries are well equipped at least to ride out the short-term economic impacts. But if you look at Egypt, for example, Egypt is a far different uh, case. Lebanon, different case. Uh, Tunisia, very different case. Uh, Algeria, semi, uh, not as bad, but still a different case in the sense that they're already experiencing economic crises, high levels of unemployment, lack of investment. Uh, they have uh, governments that uh, in some cases are completely broken, in other cases uh, cement themselves by the use of force. In other words, crushing discontent by using force. But if this discontent increases, how much force could you use? I'm not saying there's going to be any issues in Egypt. Sisi appears to be well established uh, in the institutions of state. The army are firmly uh, behind him. Uh, there's little doubt about that whatsoever. Whereas once upon a time we talked about a possible alternative with the Muslim Brotherhood, it doesn't seem there's a genuine alternative now uh, in Egypt. So I think 
CC, uh, as he's been navigating already an economic crisis, I think COVID-19 may compound some of that, but it doesn't change his overall strategy uh, in dealing with that. Uh, with regards to Lebanon, if anything, in countries like Lebanon and Iraq, uh, without going in each country bit by bit, I know you asked for a macro level, so Lebanon and Iraq, which are the countries where protests take place, COVID-19 has a more detrimental impact because it threatens the continuity of the protests, which allows the government breathing space, which allows them to recover, which allows them to reestablish themselves, which means the continuity of the economic chaos that we saw even before uh, COVID-19. So that's just a brief overall overview. You've already touched on it, Sami, but one of the factors that will determine the economic health or otherwise is the outcome of the oil price war. How damaging do you think it's going to be? I think it's, it, it's tough to gauge. I know there's been a lot of hyperbole in, in, in the media talking about the oil price war and people talking about this going on for years, for five, six years and the like. But I, I, I do think that neither Russia nor Saudi nor even the US, which is at the core of this oil price war, uh, actually want this to go on for much longer. Uh, and, and, and the reason being is that we have to understand why it took place in the first place. Uh, very briefly, uh, Russia is essentially upset that the US is challenging its market. So Pompeo was in Belarus in, in February, the first visit by uh, a significant uh, a senior official of the United States to Belarus for a long time. Uh, and in front of everybody, he said, we in the U.S. are now prepared to provide all of the oil needs of Belarus. Now, this is a Russian market. Russia provides all of Belarus's oil needs. Russia is saying, what's going on here? I mean, why is the U.S. Uh, challenging my markets? This is ridiculous. Uh, I, I allied with OPEC to try to crush the U.S. oil companies. Moreover, the U.S. is using sanctions on Rosneft, on my companies, on companies involved in the Nord Stream 2 project that brings gas from Siberia all the way to Europe in order to give its own companies a competitive advantage. Uh, so the Russians are essentially saying if the U.S. is going to try to take my markets, I need to protect them by increasing production and I will not cut production and lose potential markets. Saudi's like, I can't lose my markets either, so let me flood the market uh, with, with oil. And when it comes to, to the reason why this is important is because it shows that a lot of this is rea action, reaction. Russia is doing it because it feels it has to. Saudi is doing it because it feels it has to. And U.S. holds the cards here. That's why there's talk that U.S. is negotiating with Russia on one hand, negotiating with Saudi on the other hand to partner up uh, on oil prices. And even the shale oil industry seems intent on trying to ride out uh, this recent oil price war because they believe it won't last uh, either. So I think the, the impact of the oil price war is significant. It really hinders the capability of the economies to deal with COVID-19. But when you look at the countries that are affected, these are countries already going through uh, economic crises, even when the oil price was at uh, a decent level. It may accelerate some of the political instability, not necessarily in the Gulf, which has huge reserves, but other countries where they don't have uh, those large reserves. But I think generally the oil price war, it remains to be seen. If, I don't think it would last for a long time because it's not in anybody's interest. And I think if COVID-19 really ravages the US economy, I think the US will, will back off a little bit and tell the Russians, look, look okay, like just, just calm down, end the price war with Saudis and we won't provide Belarus's oil needs. We will back off a bit off your markets. Uh, so I, I don't think it will last. I think at some point there will be some agreement. Given the scenario you've just sketched out, how far do you think uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince is prepared to go? I think with Mohammed bin Salman, uh, it's, 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 it's very basic. It's, 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 it's the sense that Saudi Arabia's only leverage in global politics and, and on the US in particular is oil. If you remove oil, Saudi no longer has any leverage to strong arm the US. It's true that Saudi tends to follow the US line, but there, are, there have been times where Saudi has tried to resist the US and when the US really pushes, 
it turns on the pressure uh, via oil. In other words, for Bin Salman, any games played with regards to oil prices, with regards to oil, with regards to the hydrocarbon industry is a red line, even when it comes to its relationship uh, with the US. So I think when Bin Salman uh, sees Russia flooding the markets and threatening the potential markets that Saudi Arabia operates in and the rise of US shale, Saudi Arabia is well aware that the rise of US shale does not benefit it in the slightest. If anything, it removes the last leverage Saudi Arabia has on the US and Saudi Arabia will become a vassal state in the full meaning of the word. I know many people accuse Saudi Arabia of already being a vassal state. Any person in Bin Salman's position knows that they must go all out to protect the oil markets and ensure that Saudi Arabia continues to be a major player in the oil markets. That's why uh, a lot of people have accused Bin Salman's antics here, but I think a more considered approach of what's at stake suggests that uh, Saudi Arabia is kind of struggling for choices here. Let's uh, move on to political structures, to the governance. Do you think that authoritarian regimes will be even more entrenched as a result of the actions taken to combat COVID-19? I've seen a lot of this, uh, people worried that COVID-19 will increase authoritarian measures. I think the first question that everybody has to ask themselves is, what would you describe the regimes before COVID-19? Um, were they semi-authoritarian? Were they 90% uh, authoritarian? As far as I can see uh, in the Middle East, Bin Salman was firmly cemented, Sisi firmly cemented, Mohammed bin Zayed uh, firmly cemented, uh, Qatar al-Thani, uh, even though people don't necessarily use the term authoritarian, but the Al-Thani family firmly cemented, Al-Khalif and Bahrain firmly cemented, Al-Sabah in Kuwait uh, firmly uh, cemented. So I think uh, when we're looking at that, these regimes, did they need COVID-19 to uh, establish for themselves uh, powers and, 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 and authority that would enable them to take measures that we would consider to be authoritarian? Uh, I think not. I don't think COVID-19 changes that in any way whatsoever. So I think in terms of the, the political structures, the regimes and the like, I think they are as they are. The, the, there are no real changes. Well, let's uh, look at the other side of the street then, the democratic efforts. Uh, I'm thinking here not of just Tunisia, but street protests in Algeria, Lebanon and Iraq. How will the effort to achieve democracy, will those efforts be damaged as a result of COVID-19? I think so. I, I think talking on a macro scale, macro scale is, is, is slightly harder, but, but I'll do my best here. So uh, let's, let's take Lebanon, uh, for example. Lebanon succeeded in bringing down governments. Iraq succeeded in bringing down uh, governments. Algeria is a bit of a different case because before COVID-19, you brought down a government, you did presidential elections. Even if it was disputed, the, the, the declining numbers in the protest movement suggest that more Algerians prefer to follow some sort of political process than a continuation of the protest. But in terms of, of, of democratic movements and the like, um, COVID-19 uh, has given a breathing space to those who were under pressure beforehand. So in Iraq, for example, we know that militias were used to shoot at protesters because the political elite were terrified that the protesters were actually going to do something serious and bring about serious change. Um, having said that, the Iraqi political elite were already finding the space and, and space to maneuver to form their own government as well. It wasn't like in Algeria where, for example, it was uh, absolutely impossible for Bouteflika to stay in power. Uh, with Lebanon, uh, Lebanon, they, uh, there's still the maneuvering and, and machinations going on between the parties. COVID-19 will have the biggest impact here because Lebanon was actually on the cusp or, or getting closer and closer to genuine change from the root level uh, up. I think COVID-19 will reduce the impact uh, or the pressure of the protesters uh, on the government. 
But the protesters are lucky in that even if COVID-19 has forced a lot of them to go home and reduce their potency as a protest movement, the economic disaster brought about by COVID-19 has put its own pressure on the government. In other words, if the government couldn't survive because of the protest and suddenly got a breathing space as, well as a result of COVID-19, it will not have any breathing space from the economic crisis. Everything suggests that Leban the Lebanese will be forced, even if they don't want to, even if the government doesn't want them to, they'll be forced to take to the streets again. Lebanon is the only place where I think the protest movement is safe. In Iraq, I think it's going to uh, dissipate. I don't think it will have the same potency that it had before. The Americans are planning some military operation against the Iranian militias as well. The journalists will focus on that, not on the protesters. Uh, they will focus on the political machinations between Iran uh, and the US. So I think in these two places where you actually see democratic movements, COVID-19 will have a huge impact on Iraq, limited impact on Lebanon. What about the MENA wars? Will COVID-19 help to end wars in Syria and Yemen and Libya? Put yourself in Haftar's position uh, or put yourself as an advisor to Haftar. And you see that the world now is suddenly focused on COVID-19. They're closing their borders. They're not focused on anything except COVID-19 and the protection of their economies. That means that nobody is going to come in and sweep in and say, you have to go to Berlin, you have to go to Moscow, you have to go to these negotiations, you have to sit at this table, you have to talk to this person. In other words, now you have a golden opportunity to do what you want without any repercussions from the international community uh, telling you to talk instead of fighting. For Haftar, this is a golden opportunity to take Tripoli. This is the time to escalate military confrontation. This is what his advisors will be telling him. Now that you've removed the, the talk of peace processes and the like because of COVID-19, go ahead and see who wins that military victory. And France uh, actually uh, is, uh, subscribes to that view. Uh, yesterday, uh, well, yesterday from the time of the recording of this, uh, it uh, intercepted arms coming from Turkey to Saraj to help Saraj defend himself against Haftar. France is trying to prevent all of the arms going to Saraj in order to help Haftar to seize uh, Tripoli. So in Libya, we'll see an escalation of the conflict. In Yemen, uh, likewise, uh, in Yemen, uh, COVID-19 means that the UN uh, mission uh, doesn't want to keep going back and forth, doesn't want to keep flying, wants to make sure that uh, it doesn't catch COVID-19. Like, in other words, it's, it's, it's a good time. I say good time in a very amoral way, but it's, it's, it's a good time for uh, certain battles that would not have been fought because of the intervention of the UN to be fought and to see who wins uh, those battles. This is why Houthi, they took Al Jouf. Uh, this is why they've tried to launch a missile to Saudi Arabia to try to get a PR offensive. Because uh, think about it, just yesterday or, or just a few weeks ago, we were talking about potential negotiations between the Saudis and the, and the, and the Houthis. That suddenly broke down. The Houthis now are on a PR offensive, uh, claiming they will release Saudi prisoners in exchange for Palestinian prisoners because the Palestinian cause, everybody sympathizes with it, and launched missiles on Saudi. In other words, the negotiations broke down. So now that everybody's focused on COVID-19, this is a time for the groups from their perspective. I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm saying, I'm speaking from their perspective. They believe this is a perfect time to increase the wars. And Syria is exactly the same as well. Nobody's focused on it. Just keep pushing. Maybe you might be able to take Idlib while everybody's focused on COVID-19. In other words, if anything, COVID-19 has opened, uh, has let all hell loose in Libya, in Yemen and in Syria. Finally, Sami, let me turn now to the social landscape. How is COVID-19 changing the way that the MENA region functions, those countries function as societies? 
That's uh, much tougher. I think, if anything, it's exacerbated the differences between the young generation and the elderly generation. And I say that because um, uh, it might be actually very similar to Europe here, in the sense that uh, the younger generation haven't actually taken COVID-19 uh, as serious as the older generation. So in Algeria, for example, when we talk about the Hirak, the protest movement, um, a lot of the youth were for continuing those protests. But the elderly were saying, but if you go to the protest and bring COVID-19 back, you'll bring coronavirus to us who are most at risk and it will wipe out the elderly uh, population. And this has actually caused a big debate over the sanctity of the elderly amongst a young generation that grew up uh, in an environment whereby there was no respect for the rule of law, no respect for human rights. If you want to get to your rights, you have to fight for it. Uh, you're on your own in the world and there's nobody there uh, to help you. So I think from this perspective in North Africa, that's the kind of debate that's been uh, emerging. I think in the Gulf states, it's, it's, a, bit more, it's a bit more different. Uh, I think given that, um, uh, to, for want of a cliche term, even though uh, I, I don't really like using it too much, uh, given the tribal structures or rather the close family ties that still exist, uh, in many of, of, of the Gulf areas, uh, I think it's a bit different. I think uh, families have come together, they've, they've stayed within their vicinities, uh, they've continued with their own customs and their own uh, traditions. But I think the most important uh, impact on, on society in the Middle East generally is that uh, talk has shifted from the dark, crude politics of who has power uh, to genuine talk about the basic institutions uh, of the state that provide welfare and care for the people. People are talking about their healthcare systems now. People are saying, listen, for all the talk about politics and, and democracy and, and freedom of speech and the like, uh, there are uh, essentials that we haven't uh, focused on, which, are, which is healthcare, which is our hospitals, which is our doctors, which is their salaries, which is the ability to provide social, welf uh, social welfare uh, on the part of the state for uh, the people. Where is our, our, uh, the, the social welfare? And I think that's a very positive development because I think that's part of the democratic process. Democracy is not just about voting in elections. It's not about bringing parties to power. It is about having a population that understands what are the essentials. The essentials are not that your party is supreme. The essentials are that you give a party a chance to develop these uh, systems, these institutions, like a national health service, like uh, provision of transport and the like. And if they fail to produce that, you kick the party out and bring a new one. I think it's altering, it's bringing a debate of uh, how, to what extent should you be loyal to a party and to what extent should you consider a party insofar as they are willing to bring benefits to the country. So uh, for people to understand this really, so I can hit this point home, a lot of people in Tunisia vote Nahda because they are Nahda, not because they represent anything or because they have any clue about how to run a nation. It is Nahda, so I vote for Nahda. In other words, this COVID-19 is making people consider whether that is a sound political practice or whether one should vote Nahda because of what they offer as opposed to who they are. And I think that's a very welcome change. Sunny, thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Sami Hamdi, Editor-in-Chief of the International Interest. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, Editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.